And good morning, everyone. Would you guys join me in uh, your Bibles? We'll be opening up to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk, chapter 3. Our passage is verse uh, 16 down through verse 19, closing verses. Let me just read our passage this morning. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is God's word. This morning we come to the end of our series in Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet who struggled to come to terms with what God was doing in raising up Babylon to destroy the Israelites. He had a hard time with this. Habakkuk was promised that dark times were coming for his people, times of severe judgment for their unfaithfulness. And Habakkuk has shown us how to deal with with dark times, whether we're talking about societal or cultural dark times or intensely personal. We have seen and we have learned that the great Babylonian empire is going to crush his country. Habakkuk is promised disaster and ruin. And like any of us would, he lifted his eyes heavenward and he asked God the tough confrontational questions like, why are you allowing this? How is this fair? And yet, as the book comes to an end, the prophet speaks of joy. Joy. This is a different Habakkuk than the man who began the book. He's a man transformed. If you remember some weeks back when Pastor Gary opened Habakkuk before us as we began, verse 2 of chapter 1, the book begins with Habakkuk desperately asking God, How long will you not hear me? And now we come to the end, and Habakkuk says, I will quietly wait. At the end of the book, he's able to face the coming destruction with poise, with patience. And he affirms God's goodness in the midst of it. When do you you or I come to the conclusion that God is good? When things are going well for us, right? Most of the time, when our fig trees are blossoming, when the harvest is in, um, when, our, when our money's coming in, when our health is there, and when the circumstances of our lives are doing well, then we say, ah, God is good. Yet Habakkuk found a way to say that in the midst of the worst possible circumstances. Verse 19, he says, The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In the midst of his suffering... Habakkuk actually experiences growth. 
He's not floundering in despair. He's actually doing better than before. He speaks about being in the high places. He's being pushed to the heights. He's increasing in strength in the Lord. We have seen people suffer. Suffering always does one of two things to us. Either it pushes us up to the high places, like Habakkuk is speaking about, or it takes us down. Either it causes us to become, sometimes suffering causes people to become softer. Other times it hardens them. Sometimes it pushes us into greater humility. Other times we become more arrogant, more prideful. Nothing can push us into pride and arrogance like suffering can. We, if we feel entitled and we say, why is this happening to me? I'm angry about this. I don't deserve this. Right? But then at the same time, we've, we've seen suffering like that of Habakkuk's. We've seen where nothing can push you into greater humility and, and peace and even joy the way that suffering can. Habakkuk shows us that rejoicing in the Lord comes during sorrow and grief. Hugely important to recognize. Verse 16 shows us Habakkuk's response to everything he's been seeing. All through chapters 1 and 2 and 3, he has been seeing what God is going to do and how this is all going to go down. And then in verse 16, he offers his response. It's powerful. He says, I'm filled with absolute, essentially, I'm filled with absolute fear and terror, sorrow and grief, yet I will quietly wait. What's the significance of that? You know, he doesn't say, I'm struck with fear and grief, so I'm going to panic and freak out. Or, you know, he doesn't say, I'm maybe just going to give myself up and I'm going to resign myself to utter despair. Instead, he says, he says, I am in deep sorrow. Currently, I am, in, I am experiencing deep sorrow and deep grief and I have peace. I have joy. We have a problem with this. Those two states of mind for us so often are mutually exclusive. You can be in a place of sorrow and grief, or you can be in a place of joy and peace and comfort. You can't have both of those at the same time. You don't, you know, you don't have those two things together, but then Habakkuk says, yes, you can. Habakkuk was rejoicing in the Lord as he was inside of his sorrow. It was happening in his sorrow. In other words, it didn't replace his sorrow. And it didn't even come after his sorrow, after he had gone through it. His rejoicing was coming inside the sorrow. How does that work? Latifah Phillips is uh, the singer-songwriter behind a music project uh, that has been, in recent years, they've been making newer renditions of great old hymns. It's kind of what they've set out to do, uh, this group. And one of her most famous songs has been a version she kind of did, a new rendition of the old children's song, I've Got the Joy, 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 Down in My Heart. Where? Down in my, yeah, you know. And it's, um, that song, it's, it's been one of her most famous songs, and it's interesting, it's gotten so much attention and the reason is because she took that child's, that children's song and she slowed it down. And she threw in a lot of minor chords. And she changed the melody. She kind of like howls or whines kind of. It's, it's almost like she's in pain as she sings that melody. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It, it sounds like she's trying to convince herself 
that she's got joy in her heart. The way this song came across is she added a bridge, uh, extremely emotionally charged. And so, I mean, when you hear it, it doesn't sound joyful anymore. It's not, you know, check it out on YouTube later. Page CXVI, uh, Joy is the name of the song. And, and so it sounds eerie. It's kind of depressing. And you're like, what is this? I don't, I don't like this very much. And so it's gotten a lot of attention. But Latifa wrote about her experience in rewriting that song. And she says in her blog, The first time I played Joy was the night my father passed away. He had a short and painful battle with cancer. As I sat at the piano, the weight of loss hit my chest. The truth is that I was terribly and profoundly sad. The reality of the grief had not even entirely hit me yet. But at the same moment, I had a deep sense of peace. He was no longer in pain. He was no longer sick. Although I still miss him, I know that God has weaved redemption through death into my father's story. That brings me great joy. It was not until the grief became a part of my story that I realized that joy is not simply an expression, but an attitude and an acknowledgement of the deep peace of knowing the Savior. Listen to this. Latifa says later, I now know that you can experience grief and joy simultaneously. That is what Habakkuk was experiencing, a kind of suffering and grief that was actually pushing him to the heights, pushing him into joy. So how can we do this? How do you or I come to the place where we can have hope in the midst of, of darkness, where we can literally rejoice in the midst of tribulation. Well, looking at these closing verses this morning, I would suggest that looking at Habakkuk, there are three components to this, three crucial parts of what we're seeing here. Number one, admitting our fear. Number two, acknowledging our circumstances. And number three, affirming our joy then after that. So admitting our fear, acknowledging our circumstances, and then affirming our joy. Verse 16, first point. My body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for like three decades, some years back. In his commentary on this passage, he said, this is a brilliant description of intense, bone-shattering fear. And Habakkuk is honest enough to say that this is how he felt. Boyce says, strong faith is not incompatible with fleshly weakness. Even that intense weakness that expresses itself in great anxiety. What an interesting concept. Strong faith is not incompatible with fleshly weakness. You see, nowhere in the Bible do we find some kind of stiff upper lip, I can tough this out mentality or approach to suffering. We do not see that. Nor do we see any kind of stoicism where we just kind of Just take what life throws at us, try to become detached emotionally so we don't get hurt. That's not what's going on here. All throughout the Bible, we see the exact opposite of that. I think many of us might think that expressing emotion in our sorrow, in our grief, shows a lack of faith. 
but that's not the pattern that we see. Remember Job chapter 1, after all the horrible things that had happened to him, the Bible says Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head, and it says in all of this, Job did not sin. I wonder if some of us would look at Job in the midst of his breaking down and doing those things, and we would say, pull yourself together, you know, like, calm down, you know. Maybe we would say he, he, he shows a lack of faith. Like, if you just, if your faith was stronger, you wouldn't be freaking out so much, maybe we'd say, crying out in despair like that. But the Bible says he sinned not. The biblical examples we see do not show us people who suppressed their emotions in times of grief, somehow pretending that everything was okay. Instead, we see people time and time again crying out to God the way Habakkuk does, with raw honesty, admitting fear, often charged with emotion. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the entire book of Lamentations. It's a book with the title of Lamenting. And even we see it in the Lord Jesus as he wept violently over the death of his friend Lazarus. So following the examples of Scripture... Christians are called to admit their fear. Experiencing peace and joy in the midst of suffering comes when we're willing to be honest about the weight of our grief, to call it what it is, to not pretend that it's, it's actually not so bad, we've got strong faith, we can tough it out, but to seriously pull it out on the rug and say this is bad and to call it what it is, to be honest about it. Habakkuk does this. He he describes in pretty extreme language the turmoil he's experiencing because of this dreadful news of coming destruction. I mean, he could have just said, I heard the word of the Lord and it freaked me out. It made me sad or whatever. He he doesn't do that. He describes a kind of fear that, that goes so far beyond even just his thoughts or emotions. Literally, it takes him over physically. Have you experienced that? I hear, he says, and my body trembles. By the way, the word there for body would be more literally translated my bowels. Don't think about that too long, but you get the idea. My lips quiver, my legs tremble. Habakkuk is experiencing profound anxiety. Think like a a severe panic attack. And yet, I will quietly wait, he says. How could he do that? How could he express his crippling fear, taking him over, even physically, and yet remain calm with a quiet patience? The answer? He had an encounter with God that resulted in a major paradigm shift. People don't remain the same when they encounter God. Think of Isaiah, the prophet. When he saw God, he cried, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. The prophet Daniel, in chapter 7 and 8, he had visions of the Lord, and he tells of his reaction. Chapter 7, he says, My thoughts were greatly alarmed, and my color changed. In chapter 8, again, he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. We think of the Apostle John, of course, who meets the risen Christ in his vision, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Because of our sinful nature, we naturally place ourselves above God 
as the ultimate judge of right and wrong, of fair and unfair. We want to be our own ultimate authorities. This is the natural inclination of our hearts. We want to be our own ultimate authority. And so we naturally proclaim what we feel is just, and then we raise our fist against God when we suffer, disapproving of his actions. All of that changes, though, when we encounter him. If we look to the scriptures and see what has happened with these people in the Bible, Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser puts it like this, neither contemplation nor worship of the living God can take place while mortals are still proudly projecting themselves as equals or advisors to the Lord of the universe. He says, so it is in tones of self-humility that Habakkuk confesses, O Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. It's in verse 2 of chapter 3. No longer is there any request that God should withdraw his threatened judgment. Rather, Kaiser says, there is a recognition that God is perfectly free to do what he wants to do and that in so doing, he is absolutely in the right. That's a paradigm shift. That doesn't come naturally to us. When we recognize our sinfulness and therefore when we begin to see more more and more clearly God's holiness and his power and his sovereignty, we begin to realize that we don't have any place to stand on which we can complain that God is being unfair. Habakkuk came to know that. He might have not always known that, but here at the end of the book, he knows this and he trusts God's plan, even in the midst of his bone-shattering fear. So Habakkuk admits his fear. And then in verse 17, he describes the dreadful circumstances that accompanied it. This is a second point now, acknowledging our circumstances. The fig tree doesn't blossom. There's no fruit, no produce, no food, no livestock. He is describing complete and total loss and ruin, the worst possible circumstances that he could find himself in. We all experience times in which our circumstances are difficult and trying. And in those times, we all question the fairness. We all cry out for justice. As Habakkuk waits for the, the coming destruction with his crippling fear, he says, I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You see that? He wants justice. Human beings, according to a biblical worldview, human beings made in God's image, no matter who you are or where you're from or what you believe or no matter your cultural background or circumstances or whatever, human beings have an innate awareness of right and wrong, of just and unjust. And human beings have an an insatiable thirst for justice. It's something we crave. No matter who you are or what you believe, in your heart of hearts, you want things to be put right. And you have an awareness, you have some idea of what it means for things to be put right and what it doesn't mean. You didn't put that there according to the Bible. You're made in God's image. This is how we operate. And it is especially in the midst of trying circumstances that that thirst for justice shows itself. We cry out for justice. You might think of Psalm chapter 10. Reflect on these words not just in light of Habakkuk's situation, but right now in our situation, in our world. Psalm 10, the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. 
Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and you take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Those are powerful words in dark times. And really, that psalm expresses the the exact same concerns and the prayer of our prophet Habakkuk. He patiently uh, waits in the midst of his fear and he acknowledges the grim circumstances that are coming to him and his people. And in all of that, he speaks of joy and strength in the Lord. He trusts God's salvation. He has the ability to face the coming calamity with grace and patience. The problem of evil and the problem of injustice is a problem for everybody. Everybody has to, I mean, suffering is a universal human experience. Everybody suffers. Everybody will inevitably face suffering in some degree or another. And so countless books have been written on the subject. The philosophers and the religious gurus have tried to offer secrets and hints into how to deal with suffering, how to make it through. Experiencing bad circumstances like this that, that, that cause us to thirst for a justice beyond what we see, beyond our own experience, is something everybody has to do. Everybody does this. Everybody goes through this. And yet, so few of us seem to really have the ability to deal with it with the poise that we see in Habakkuk. The truth is, every, every worldview, every set of beliefs attempts to offer resources for dealing with suffering. Every set of, be- every set of beliefs uh, attempts to offer us resources for understanding and experiencing suffering. And every set of beliefs, besides the gospel, falls short. There are Eastern philosophies that say everything is just an illusion, right? So our greatest hope is to simply learn to become detached from the evil surrounding us. Just, just learn to become detached. It's all an illusion anyway, but does that really work? Uh, in his great new book, Fool's Talk, Oz Guinness tells the powerful story of the 18th century Japanese haiku poet, a man named Isa. And through a succession of sad events, this man lost his wife and all his five children. They all died, and grieving each time, Esau went to the Zen master and received the same consolation. Remember, the world is due. Dew is transient, ephemeral, right? The sun rises and the dew is gone. So too is the suffering and death in this world of illusion. So the mistake is to become too engaged. Remember, the world is due. Be more detached. Don't, you know, let yourself... Grieve, transcend the engagement of mourning so so that the grief is prolonged. After one of his children died, Esau went home unconsoled. It, It was unsatisfying for him. And he wrote one of his most famous poems. Translated to English, it reads like this. The world is due. The world is due. And yet, and yet. The entire logic of Buddhism is in the first two lines of that poem. 
And yet, the second two lines of the poem reveal to us the deep yearning of a father's heart, and it cries out in those last two lines, in times of loss and despair, like what Habakkuk is describing, the desires and the longings of our hearts will inevitably betray our very beliefs. You can say you believe the world is due, but when push comes to shove, and yet, and yet, it's not satisfying. There's something in us that craves justice. There's something in us that thirsts after meaning, purpose of some kind. And it was expressed by Isa in those lines. And yet, and yet, the desires and longings of our hearts will betray our very beliefs if our beliefs are not centered on the God who created us and who loves us. Take another example, a more, mess, a more modern Western approach, a secularist approach. What does a strictly materialistic worldview offer those of us who suffer? There's probably no one better than the brilliant biologist and staunch and vocal atheist Richard Dawkins to explain this, to explain the resources that Atheism offers those who suffer. So in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, Dawkins puts it like this. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So there you have it, pitiless indifference. And again, the question is, does that really work? Is that actually enough? If the atheist worldview is true, then the book of Habakkuk would end like this, this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, so what? The end. That's it, right? There's nothing, there's nothing left. Get on with it. Unfortunately, that's not enough for us. It fails to satisfy the innate thirst we have for justice, a thirst that was put there by God himself, making us in his image. So in in, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller points out, reflecting on this materialistic approach to the world, he says, most people who see the problems that suffering poses to belief in God move toward a more secular way of thinking. But secularism is also a set of beliefs. And it is probably the weakest of all worldviews at helping its adherents understand and endure suffering. Habakkuk didn't look to the resources offered by secularism. He didn't look to the resources offered by Buddhism or any others. He looked to the covenant-keeping God of his fathers, the creator God who had proven himself faithful despite the unfaithfulness of his people. And he placed his faith in God alone for salvation. And so he, he was able to acknowledge his circumstances and yet still affirm his joy. 
So now we come to the final point this morning, affirming our joy in the darkness. We've touched on this a little bit already, uh, rejoicing in, in tribulation. That's really the main focus of this passage, but we haven't yet defined joy. What is that? What does it mean to rejoice, especially in the midst of suffering? Understanding what joy is is the key to understanding why Habakkuk was able to rejoice inside of his tribulation. When we hear the word joy, too often we immediately equate it with our feelings, our emotions. Joy equals happy, right? It's like synonyms there. But that's not the whole picture. Obviously, certainly, Happiness and joy can overlap in many ways, but the biblical understanding of joy is not in any way contingent on our emotions, on our feelings, on our happiness. It's not at all based on how we feel. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. We, we even sing that to a happy, upbeat tune. Rejoice in the Never mind. It, it feels weird to sing in the middle of a sermon. I tried that twice this morning. Listen, it's okay. It's a good song. It's fine for us to sing that. But it's not fine for us to miss Paul's point. It's crucial for us to understand what Paul is saying. Though That's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not advice. It's a command inspired by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And that command finds itself in the middle of a letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And he speaks about, in that letter, he speaks of his unfortunate circumstances as one who had suffered for the gospel. And then at the same time, just like Habakkuk, he's speaking about peace and joy. And he he encourages and commands the church in Philippi and us to rejoice Always, And so we see that command, and when times are tough, we ask, how can Paul possibly command us to always be happy? The answer is he can't. But that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's trying to communicate. It's not how he understood joy or what it means to rejoice. In his commentary on Philippians, Matt Chandler offers uh, helpful insights on this command to rejoice always. He kind of writes a make-believe dialogue that you or I might have with Paul, you know, questioning that command to rejoice always. It goes like this. Always? Yes, always. Like when? Yes, even then. But what about then too? But surely not. Nope, even then as well. Chandler says, God is not glorified when you act happy about horrific things. He's glorified when in the deepest possible pain you experience, you can still find a way to say, I trust you. Help me. So joy isn't acting happy. It's not pretending that everything's okay. It's not faking a smile. It's not suppressing or denying the reality of our circumstances. In a recent book by Greg Forster, he offers a concise definition of joy. It's a book on knowing God's unconditional 
love. And he says joy is, he offers a definition of joy, concise and brief, based on what we're talking about, based on what the Bible is teaching. He says joy is not an emotion. It is a settled certainty that God is in control. It's not an emotion. Joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. And that settled certainty is what drove Paul to endure his suffering. It's what Habakkuk came to realize and came to have as well. In the midst of our darkness, this settled certainty is what uh, can allow us to affirm our joy, just like Habakkuk. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And so with this biblical understanding of what joy is, we can begin to see it as something that doesn't go away, ever. It's something that we have regardless of our circumstances, something that does not go away when the fig trees fail to blossom, when the produce fails, when even when our bodies tremble and and, in fear and rottenness enters our bones, it doesn't go away. Reflecting on all of this in this passage, John Calvin writes, our joy shall not depend on outward prosperity. For though the Lord may afflict us in an extreme degree, there will always be consolation as we are fully persuaded that our salvation is in God's hand and that he is its faithful guardian. Regardless of our circumstances, God's people maintain a sure confidence in his faithfulness, his promises. It's the whole point of the good news, the gospel, is that our salvation and our confidence and assurance and our hope is not in any way based on anything about us or anything we can offer. It's based entirely on his faithfulness, his promises, God himself, Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, tribula- shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now notice that Paul does not say, hugely important to notice, Paul does not say we will never experience extreme tribulation and suffering. What he's saying, rather, is that in all of these circumstances of suffering and loss, we continue to possess the love of our God. That doesn't go away. The good news is that our salvation and the preservation of God's people does not depend on us at all. All of it is rooted in and and, uh, completely dependent upon God's character, God's faithfulness, God's promises. Things weren't looking so good for God's people. Babylon, that bitter and hasty nation, was coming. Habakkuk could have collapsed into utter despair. In fact, it it maybe looked like that's where he was headed at the beginning of the book. He could have collapsed into utter despair, not knowing if his people had any kind of future. But he remembered promises of God. He reflected on God's promise. He reflected on God's faithfulness, and he believed. 
he trusted with that settled certainty that however bleak it looked, the story wasn't over. It couldn't be. He reflected on God's past faithfulness, and, and as Pastor Gary preached some weeks back, looking some weeks ago, looking uh, back and then looking ahead, looking at God's faithfulness behind us and looking ahead, uh, um, awaiting it, anticipating it in the future. You know, this isn't the only time, by the way, that things looked bleak for God's people. How did Israel survive the consecutive brutalities of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? For centuries, biblical faith has survived on earth. Only God knows how. G.K. Chesterton once said that, at least five times the faith has had to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, though, it was the dog that died. You know why? Because the security of God's people and his plan for redemption and restoration depends entirely on him, and he will see it through. That is what gave Habakkuk hope, and that is what can give you and I hope in the midst of darkness. I will build my church, says Jesus. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so all of this points us to the core of our hope, the core of our joy, the very foundation, the bedrock, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Once more, Walt Kaiser pointed out, why wouldn't the fig tree bud? These circumstances, why, why would the grapes not come on the vines? Why wouldn't the olives form, the fields yield any produce, the, the pens be full of sheep, or the stalls be filled with cattle. Why? He says, these may have been the result of the invasion of the Babylonians that was to come shortly, but ultimately the reason can be traced to the failure of the people to maintain their covenantal relationship with the Lord. That's a serious problem, covenantal failure. But ultimately, the good news is that that price was paid in full, not by the judgment and exile of the Israelites, not by any trial you or I will ever go through, but by Jesus. How how is it possible to have joy in the middle of tribulation? By knowing that this is not an indifferent or detached God Habakkuk is praying to. He's intensely personal. This is not the view of the world, uh, the atheistic view of the world, where there is no meaning, there is no purpose. We're here on our own, and that's the end of it. Nothing means anything. It's not, it's not the view of the world that everything is an illusion, and uh, we just got to detach ourselves. It's not even a view of the world where God is indifferent towards us or removed, detached. Joy and tribulation comes when we remember that this is, a, this is an intensely personal God we're talking about. What's more, in our suffering, we're reminded that this, in fact, is a suffering God. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. See, verse 17 outlines the consequences of Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness, and they were severe. And they pointed towards something so much bigger than even themselves. They pointed toward the ultimate consequence that was endured by Christ. On the cross, those consequences were fully and finally and ultimately taken on and endured in full. 
as Jesus suffered in our place. See, Habakkuk had to lose produce and wealth and the security of his people, comfort in this life. Jesus had to lose the very relationship with God the Father. Isaiah 53, upon him was laid the iniquity of us all. By his chastisement, we are brought peace. By his wounds, we are healed. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Covenantal failure comes with a severe cost, so much bigger than a Babylonian exile. And that cost was experienced in full by Jesus in our place. It was Jesus who truly experienced the ultimate darkness, the cosmic rejection that we deserved so that we can know that the Lord will never leave or forsake us. Because Jesus was truly abandoned by God, we, we can know that we only ever seem to be abandoned by God, or we only ever feel like we're abandoned, but we aren't. Despite our unfaithfulness, this is the gospel that Habakkuk was looking forward to. He had his hope, his faith, in the promises of God. All of those promises pointed directly to his son Jesus and his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. This is the gospel that Paul was looking back on that completely transformed who he was and allowed him to have these resources to be joyful in the midst of suffering. And this is the gospel that must characterize the entirety of our lives, every aspect of who we are, every fiber of our being. The gospel is not just the ABCs of salvation, as some say, it is the A to Z of the Christian life. It never gets old. You don't move beyond it unto bigger and better things. This is central to everything we are as people. And as soon as we can begin to understand that and live by that, we can begin to follow in the long line of godly men in God's kingdom throughout the ages, being empowered to live boldly in the midst of trying circumstances, the ability to be joyful in the midst of our suffering. This is the gospel that has to characterize the entirety of our lives as disciples of Jesus who, as this Sheboygan Evangelical Free Church family, seek to multiply disciples in our full-spectrum discipleship that we've been talking about. It can't happen unless this good news is foundational to everything we are. So do you know him? Have you put your hope and your confidence in Christ? Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, remind us once again of the transforming power of the gospel. Show us Jesus. Thank you for the example we have of the faithfulness of Habakkuk and living by his faith in the midst of his suffering. We recognize and know that that faithfulness, that ability, is itself a gift from you. None of us can come up with that on our own. We are reliant fully on who you are and on what you've done and on the power of your spirit to work in our lives. We have hard hearts. We have prideful, arrogant hearts. And we need your grace to uh, to start working on us, to start softening us, and helping us to become the kind of people in such a dark world that have hope. Um, Hope that is compelling to others. Hope that when others look in on our lives, on our thoughts, on our experience, 
They see something so much bigger than any of us. They are pointed directly to our King and our Savior, the conqueror of death itself, the forgiver of our sins, Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.